Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information about all of Anchorlight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Like many of the episodes this season, this episode contains adult content, so please take care when listening. If you've been following the Art Curious podcast through our current season, then you probably can glean some knowledge about my own interests in the genre of true crime. After all, it's been so hot for these past few years, and it doesn't seem like it's slowing down at all. So yes, I am one of the many, many people out there who likes to dig occasionally into true crime stories. Yes, I listen to some of the podcasts, and yes, I've been to some of those podcast live shows, and I have read a lot of true crime books and have seen the requisite true crime documentaries. As morally ambiguous as it can be to enjoy tales like this for pure entertainment, I do find them intriguing. It's easy to be fascinated with the dark side of human nature, especially when your everyday life is stable and safe. Sometimes, for those who are lucky, true crime can be fun. In addition to consuming those previously mentioned delivery systems for true crime stories, I have also been a fan of the occasional fictionalized film or TV portrayal, too. And earlier this year, 2019, I was particularly excited when TNT premiered their limited-run series called I Am the Night, starring Chris Pine and directed by Patty Jenkins. It portrayed a woman's search for information about her family and her heritage, which dovetailed with the search for one of the most elusive killers of the 20th century, the murderer of Elizabeth Short, known to us today under the moniker The Black Dahlia. This murder is one of the most gruesome in California history, perhaps even in U.S. history, and it has never been solved. Even today, the case remains open and stalled, more than 70 years later. This was enough to get me curious about watching the TV show itself. But when news articles began popping up connecting the real-life figures in the miniseries with the mid-century Los Angeles art scene replete with collectors and internationally acclaimed big-name artists, well, I was surprised. Because a case has been made that the Black Dolly's death is an awful, gory, bodily translation of surrealist visual art off of the canvas and into the real world. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs can be weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season six, we have been uncovering the dastardly deeds of several of art history's famed artists, including the involvement or their participation in Murder Most Foul. For our season finale today, a story that I've been so excited to share with you for nearly a year. Did Man Ray and the Surrealist inadvertently, or perhaps directly, influence the Black Dahlia murderer? This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. As with any discussion of a major story in the true crime sphere, there exists a truckload of information about the Black Dahlia. 
more information than can be possibly shared in today's podcast. But just know that should you want more background upon the victim, Elizabeth Short, the ongoing police investigation, the dark noir world of the 1940s in Los Angeles, and the range of suspects outside of our discussion today, rest assured that there is no lack of information and resources out there. And I'd personally recommend the podcast Root of Evil for lots more detail here. For our purposes today, however, I'm going to give you the basics of the crime, the top suspect, and that suspect's relationship to the visual arts. But first, let's discuss the finding of the corpse of the Black Dahlia. On January 15, 1947, Betty Bursinger was taking a walk with her toddler daughter through the Lamert Park neighborhood of South Los Angeles, an area that, at the time, was still only loosely developed and populated. On the side of the road at an abandoned lot, Bursinger and her daughter approached what appeared at first glance to be a fashion mannequin that had been disassembled or abandoned. As the two got closer, Bursinger realized quite quickly and quite horrifically that it wasn't a mannequin at all, but a woman that had been cut cleanly in half, drained of blood, and positioned with her body halves obviously separated and with her limbs splayed, arms above her head. The woman's face had been mutilated, cut from ear to ear in what appeared to be a ghastly smile. This corpse wasn't just thrown on the side of the road. She had been purposely prepared and posed for a specific effect. Soon after the discovery of the mutilated body, police confirmed the identity of the victim as Elizabeth Short, a waitress who moved to California from the East Coast with hopes of becoming an actress. Short's lustrous dark hair, combined with her purported love of the Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd film The Blue Dahlia, may have inspired Short's friends to bestow her with the now-immortal nickname. Today, many might shrug their shoulders if you mention the name Elizabeth Short. But say the Black Dahlia, and an image is immediately conjured. The same thing happened in the late 1940s. Because of the absolutely horrific manner in which Short's post-mortem body was displayed, because of her alluring nickname, and because a killer was not immediately identified, the story of Elizabeth Short's murder became big news fast. Los Angeles police received dozens of tips regarding possible leads and theories as to the identity of the murderer, with 60 individuals coming forward to confess to the crimes during the first few months of the initial investigation. None panned out. And interestingly, there have now been over 500 purported confessions of the Black Dahlia killer, but all have been ID'd as false confessions. Go figure. But by mid-1947, the case had already started going cold. And as one of the lead detectives, Sergeant Finnis Brown, noted, quote, No lead had any conclusions. Once we find something, it seemed to disappear before our eyes, unquote. Two years later, a grand jury convened to discuss the LAPD's failure at solving several high-profile murders, including the Black Dahlia case. This revisiting to the Dahlia case and the probable embarrassment that its still unsolved status bestowed upon the LAPD led investigators to renewed efforts at identifying the killer. They narrowed down a large list of suspects down to a total of 25, none of whom were ever charged with the crime. On that original list was a Los Angeles-born physician and art collector whose interest in surrealism and his connection to several surrealists makes him of particular interest to us today. His name was George Hill Hodell Jr. George Hodell grew up in Los Angeles and by all accounts had a particularly charmed upbringing as the only son of a wealthy and connected family. Hodell was a child prodigy with an IQ in the genius range and a wunderkind on the piano. 
So much so that the famed Russian composer Sergei Rachmaninoff even made a visit to the Hodel home in order to hear the young George perform. During his teen years, George Hodel became interested in the visual arts, aspiring early on to be a photographer. And several of his artsy, blurry self-portraits do still exist out there. Eventually, though, Hodel opted to move into medicine instead. But he still kept the art world close to his heart. And, in a sick way, may have even created an ultimate surrealist nod himself. A terrible crime completed as a potential reference to his close friend, the artist Man Ray. Born Emanuel Rednitsky in Philadelphia in August 1890 to a family of Russian-Jewish immigrants, Man Ray was one of the most prolific artists involved in both the Dada and Surrealist art movements of the early 20th century. Man Ray began his life as an artist at a very early age, and was so set in his aim to become a working artist that he even turned down a lucrative scholarship to an architectural college in order to pursue his dream of becoming a painter. Ray first worked as a commercial designer and illustrator in Manhattan after high school, and practiced in what was a pretty traditional, very 19th century artistic style, all realistic and figurative. In 1913, though, he attended an art exhibition that blew his socks off and changed his life. He saw the 1913 Armory Show, the first truly large-scale modern art exhibition in the United States, and one that introduced several art superstars to the American public. Pablo Picasso, Vasily Kandinsky, Mary Cassatt, Paul Cezanne, Henri Matisse, Edward Hopper, Ernst Ludwig Kirchner. I could go on, you guys. This was one epic exhibition. Even Claude Monet and our old pal Vincent van Gogh were part of the show. And Man Ray was giddy. He was especially taken by Cubism and Futurism and their dreams of presenting the new ideas of space and movement in art. Speed and mechanics especially interested him. But if there was one artist who most thrilled him at the Armory show, it was Marcel Duchamp. Listeners, I am sure that by now many of you are familiar with the name Marcel Duchamp. We've talked about him a few times on this podcast, including most recently in our episode on his, or maybe his, controversial fountain urinal sculpture, part of last year's series on shock art. We also touched on him again in a bonus episode that followed up on our fountain tale with a consideration of the theory that fountain was actually created and or inspired by Duchamp's friend and colleague, the Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven. Please do go back and listen to those episodes if you are new to the show and catch up on the fascinating debate and this influential and, again, controversial artist. At the Armory Show, Duchamp exhibited one of his most debated works ever, a painting titled Nude Descending a Staircase No. 2, a work from 1912 that didn't fare too well in France upon original exhibition and wasn't too positively received at the Armory either, as people struggled to find a nude at all. Was Duchamp showing an automaton descending a staircase? Was it a disavowal of traditional art historical representations of the nude in the human figure? Was it even art? Duchamp's so-called nude was a scandal, and Man Ray loved it. He quickly became friends with Duchamp and began working in similar artistic modes as the French artist, becoming one of the foremost proponents of Dada and surrealism in the United States during the first two decades of the 20th century. After moving to Paris and immersing himself in the arts, especially working as a photographer, Man Ray escaped the dawning horrors of World War II by returning to the U.S., this time settling in Los Angeles. And it was there that he became friendly with arts collector and surrealist supporter George Hodel. Coming up right after the quick break, it's time to parse the creepy similarities between several surrealist tropes and the death of Elizabeth Short. Stay with us. 
It's the time of year when everyone is traveling or running around getting thoughtful gifts for the people they care about. So why not consider giving your loved ones, or even yourself, a gift of Audible membership? Now is the very best time to do it with a very special offer of 53% off your first three months. With Audible, you can access an unbeatable selection of audiobooks, including bestsellers, motivation, mysteries, thrillers, memoirs, and more. You can choose up to three titles every month, one audiobook, and two exclusive Audible originals that you can't hear anywhere else. Plus, you can listen on any device, anytime, and anywhere with the Audible app. It is great while commuting, or at the gym, or during your holiday travels. Audible personally keeps me going while I am doing the dishes, you guys. And with Audible, you'll enjoy easy audiobook exchanges and your own audiobook library that you can keep forever, even if you cancel. And right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just $6.95 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. I'm looking forward to spending my new year with a couple of great art-related books, like The Vanishing Velasquez, a 19th century bookseller's obsession with a lost masterpiece by Laura Cumming, and Provenance, How a Con Man and a Forger Rewrote the History of Art by Laura Sainsbury and Ali Sujo. So why not treat yourself to something similar? Give yourself the gift of listening with Audible. For more information, visit audible.com slash artcurious or text artcurious, one word, to 500-500. Remember, that's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash artcurious or text artcurious to 500-500. Do you experience stress or have anxiety or chronic pain or have trouble sleeping at least once a week? You are not alone. Many of us do. Personally, I'm always looking for a better way to get a little shut-eye, but sometimes melatonin doesn't do the trick, and I don't always want to reach for an over-the-counter medication to solve something so simple as sleep. I wanted something better for me, something more natural, and that's why I am excited about Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. It naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness, and it's so easy to use. Just place a few drops of Feels under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. I loved trying out Feels' CBD flight system, which provides you with a starter kit with a variety of samples to try so that I could establish which dose would work best for me to get the sleep I wanted. And it was wonderful. I love that I can wake up feeling well-rested without feeling a hangover or a high or any kind of addiction. Just a natural way to rest up. And look, I get that some people are new to CBD and you don't quite know what to do, and that's something that I love about Feels too. Because they offer a free CBD hotline and text message support to help guide your personal experience. And when you become part of the Feels community with their membership program, you'll get Feels delivered directly to your door every month. You'll save money on every order and you can pause and cancel at any time. Feels has me feeling my best every day and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com artcurious and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash artcurious to become a member and get 50% taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. In May 1999, George Hodel died in San Francisco at the age of 91 after living for half his life in the Philippines, where he moved in 1950 after a series of events dogged him. First was the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, in 1945. Spaulding was thought to have died as a result of a drug overdose, but Hodel was suspected of being involved, though he was never charged. Four years later, in 1949, Hodel's own daughter, Tamar, accused him of incestual sexual abuse, 
noting that such abuse ended in a pregnancy which Tamar was then forced to terminate through a dangerous back-alley abortion. George Hodel was tried, but acquitted of his crime. After this, he moved away, far, far away, to the Philippines. And right in between the death of Spalding and the incest trial was the murder of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. After Hodel's 1999 death, one of his sons, Steve Hodel, was tasked with mulling through his father's possessions. Among his father's papers, he discovered photographs of an unidentified woman with glossy dark hair and a mysterious and glamorous air. Steve Hodel was an LAPD homicide detective, and he was immediately taken by the photo because the woman in the picture reminded him of something, or to be precise, of someone. Someone mysterious and still a curiosity and a legend within the LAPD. The Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short. Steve Hodel found further things among his father's possessions that intrigued him. Documents attesting to his father's strange sexual proclivities, his penchant for violence, and most interestingly, his interest in art. Included in George Hodel's documents were a number of photographs of George Hodel, his wife Dorothy, and his children, all taken by a big name artist, Man Ray. George Hodel even owned works of art by Man Ray. This discovery was the beginning of a huge moment for Steve Hodel as he began to unravel a tangled web that linked George Hodel to the LA art world, especially through his friendship and familiarity with Man Ray. Four years after his father's death, Steve Hodel published Black Dahlia Avenger, A Genius for Murder, which skyrocketed to bestseller status on the New York Times list and a case that he has continued to add to over the past 16 years, and through a further four books, delineated the myriad connections between his father and the killer of the Black Dahlia. He's also even further declared that George Hodel may have been the infamous Zodiac killer, but that one seems extraordinarily implausible. The connection to the Dahlia, though? That one seems to make a little bit more sense, at least. Though Hodel's theory of his father's guilt is predicated on many things, not the least of which being that his father was one of the original shortlisted suspects of the crime, someone whose home was even bugged by the LAPD because of their suspicions, a huge key to Steve Hodel's argument is the striking similarities between the appearance and pose of Elizabeth Short's body and the way that women most frequently are visualized in surrealist art. Steve Hodel writes that Man Ray and George Hodel became acquainted in Los Angeles after Man Ray relocated to the city in the 1940s, with the two men drawn together by their shared interests in the tenets of surrealism, which, like Dada, its predecessor, sought to dismantle rationality in favor of seeking a different kind of truth through accessing the subconscious mind. The poet André Breton established a circle of surrealist esthetes, writers, and intellectuals in France in the 1920s, and the philosophy quickly spread around the world, ending up in inspiring people in the U.S. as well. The dream world and the psychological theories of Sigmund Freud were key to the surrealists, who hoped to open doors to their subconsciousness via assemblage, automatic writing, and strange and uncanny imagery and word combinations. One of the most popular surrealist modes originated as a parlor game, wherein two or more individuals each draw on a folded sheet of paper where the previous artist's contributions are concealed. So, when drawing a body, for example, one artist might sketch a head, a second would be responsible for creating the torso, and a third might draw the legs. What is created, then, is a bizarre mishmash of shapes, styles, ideas, and even symbols and subject matter. A Frankenstein's monster of a figure. 
Breton, alongside fellow surrealist Duchamp, painter Yves Tanguy, and poet Jacques Prévert, pioneered this concept. And one of the things that pops up repeatedly in this, called The Exquisite Corpse, as well as many other surrealist works of art, is an undercurrent of violence, especially violence towards women, which also frequently had a sexual tinge. So think about The Exquisite Corpse. In creating a drawing that is meant to represent an actual figure, or more specifically, the so-called corpse whose name is given to this method of artistic production, the figure is sectioned, sliced, divided, oftentimes drawn nude by the surrealists, and almost always is a female figure. Sound familiar? It sure did to Steve Hodel. And the more that he looked at surrealist art, especially the work of Man Ray and Man Ray's good friend Marcel Duchamp, the more Steve began to feel confident in his thesis that the Black Dahlia murder was surrealist art made reality. As Steve Hodel recounted to Dr. Phil in his eponymous TV show in March 2019, quote, This is Dad's surrealist masterpiece. I talk about his scalpel being his paintbrush and her body was the canvas. It is that twisted, unquote. Elizabeth Short became, in both a literal and metaphorical sense, an exquisite corpse. In his books, Steve Hodel relies mostly on circumstantial evidence to support his arguments. But his web of art historical connections is truly attention-grabbing, and that is what we are focusing on here today. These artistic connections were taken to the next level by art museum designer Mark Nelson and the arts and culture journalist Sarah Hudson Bayless in their 2006 book, Exquisite Corpse, Surrealism and the Black Dahlia Murder. In this book, the authors analyze the Dahlia's case from a purely visual and art historical perspective. Here, they relay that many surrealist signifiers and visual vocabulary circled around misogyny and sexual violence against women. In Man Ray's artworks from the 1940s, for example, women's faces are frequently scratched out. Photographs of nude women, too, are altered so as to make their forms appear bisected or with strange amputations. Oftentimes in Man Ray's images and in other works of art, including those by Man Ray's own art dealer, William Copley, there exist scenes of naked women in unsettling locations or positions, sometimes lorded over by a very threatening man, who would of course be fully dressed in comparison. And sometimes, these women appeared with their eyes closed, a frequent trope in surrealist imagery that evokes a fascination with dream worlds or an interior life a la Sigmund Freud, but also hints at a dark obsession with death of snuffing the light out of someone's eyes. Threat and control are huge touchstones in each of these images. And all of these, Steve Hadell, Mark Nelson, and Sarah Hudson Bayless argue, are present in the actual killing of Elizabeth Short. It's like George Hodell came in and took all of these elements and translated one into a single form, merging them together into one artsy, fame-grabbing crime. Steve Hodell and the Exquisite Corpse authors drew further connections between the adopted surrealist mascot, the Minotaur, as a potential model for the body placement of Short post-death. Like other surrealists of the day, Man Ray loved the Minotaur as an artistic subject and referenced it frequently in his works. The Minotaur, a figure stemming from Greek mythology, was a curious beast who was part man, part bull, and who devoured young people, including and especially young maidens, who were sacrificed for its sustenance. In the eyes of the Surrealists, the Minotaur was meant to symbolize the darkest desires of mankind. Man is beast, man is animal, man is killing machine fueled by bloodlust. 
The Minotaur makes appearances or is referenced in numerous works by André Masson, Max Ernst, Giorgio de Chirico, and even Pablo Picasso, just to name a few scant examples. But the Minotaur connection to the Black Dahlia seems strongest and most direct when compared to the works of Man Ray. Take a recently rediscovered print by Man Ray, a 1969 lithograph titled Les Invendables, which roughly translates to something too damaged to be marketable. In the image, a nude torso of a woman, her pendulous breasts hanging down, is splayed with her arms up and over her head. Her face is marred out with red ink, and her lower body is delineated in the same color, as if it appears to bleed down into four legs, into the sturdy form of the Minotaur. On his blog, Steve Hodel superimposes the widely available crime scene photographs of Elizabeth Short over the Man Ray Minotaur image. And while it is not a perfect match, it is enough to make your hair stand on the back of your neck. Was Man Ray illustrating his interest in the Dahlia murder and hinting at a possible connection to the perpetrator? Was the death of this young damaged maiden a sacrifice made to satiate a man's deepest, darkest desire? An even more compelling argument involves a strange photograph slash installation by Marcel Duchamp to the Black Dahlia. One year after Duchamp's death in 1968, a work called Etant Donné was presented at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, a piece that Duchamp had toiled over for 20 years, beginning around the time of the Dahlia murder, and that he requested would not be revealed until after his death. Installed as a peephole tableau in a wooden door, and now located at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, this work, Duchamp's last big project, and created at a time when he had supposedly given up on creating art entirely, presents viewers with a scene of a nude woman lying spread-legged in a landscape, her genitals blatantly revealed to the viewer, and her head as blatantly hidden. Here, too, the similarity in the bodily positioning of the Dahlia is notable, at the very least. To Hodel and others, it appears to be a, quote, identical, unquote, match, and shows a knowledge, if not acceptance, of Hodel's purported surrealist masterpiece. As such, not only was Hodel inspired by surrealism, but surrealists were, in turn, inspired by Hodel's one-upmanship of their own game, and they possibly acknowledged it in their own works. I have to admit that researching this, reading Steve Hodel's theories, and poring over Mark Nelson and Sarah Bayless's images, was fun, just from that true crime enjoyment perspective that I discussed at the beginning of this episode. And the connection between visual art and one of the most notorious crimes of the 20th century is totally intriguing. But all of it leads me to a big question, and it's one I admit that I personally don't have a really good answer for. The question is this. Why? Say that George Hodel was indeed a homicidal maniac and that he really is the Black Dahlia killer. The reason why he would kill is one thing, but the reasoning for turning Elizabeth Short into a surrealist symbol or reference is another entirely. Why would Hodel do this? Steve Hodel posits that George Hodel, himself an artist wannabe, so loved the works of the Surrealist that he, too, wanted to be a part of their mixed-up world. And as someone with a medical background and murderous intent, he simply used Elizabeth Short's own body and life as his medium instead of a camera or a paintbrush. Bayless and Nelson further note that the collaborative nature of Dada and Surrealism, wherein artists frequently winked at each other via their works of art, hinting and referencing each other's visuals, themes, and personal preoccupations, makes sense. George Hodel, they say, winkingly referenced Surrealism in his crime, and that Man Ray and others winked back by referring to the Dahlia murder in their own pieces. 
But if Hodel did kill the Dahlia, and artists like Man Ray and Marcel Duchamp knew of Hodel's crimes, why didn't they alert the authorities to their knowledge? And why would they themselves keep hinting at the Dahlia through their own works of art more than 20 years after the crime itself, as Duchamp supposedly did with his étant donné? And that question, the why, it's just the beginning. We can follow up with more interrogation by asking if misogyny is enough to indict the surrealists alongside Hodel here. And is the curiosity and interest in the darker side of humanity, and a willingness to illustrate it, a damning thing? In this way, it reminds me of the kinds of questions that were posited in a documentary series now considered to be classic within the true crime genre itself. The Paradise Lost series about the West Memphis Three, where three teenagers were fingered for the early 1990 murders of three Arkansas children because, in part, of the teens' penchant for wearing black and listening to heavy metal. Did the teenagers engage in murder as part of a satanic ritual fueled or symbolized by the kind of music they liked or the clothes that they wore? Same thing goes for yet another of the most gruesome crimes of the 20th century, the 1969 killings of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, and others by Charles Manson's drugged-out family. In Manson's adoption of the phrase helter-skelter to denote a racially motivated uprising against the Hollywood elite, the Beatles, whose own 1968 White Album included a song titled Helter Skelter, were thrown into the spotlight for supposedly inspiring the family's senseless gory killings. Did the Surrealists here thus inspire the death of Elizabeth Short? Ultimately, the visual stylings of Surrealism and the theoretical comparison to the Black Dahlia murder leave us with more questions and more avenues for research than actual evidence or true links. Even as renewed interest in the Black Dahlia murderer reached new heights with the release of the miniseries I Am the Night and its corresponding podcast Root of Evil, and with Steve Hodell continually publishing and publicizing his theories, Los Angeles law enforcement still considers the Black Dahlia case to be closed. And it is unlikely that any connections to art history, interesting though they may be, are going to cause it to be reopened. That being said, you never know. In art history, as in true crime, stranger things have happened. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional research help by Joe Mallon. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daveraineydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki. Video, content, ideas. Learn more at kabonki.com. Additional editing is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlite. Anchorlite is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlite encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on advertising, sponsors, and your donations to keep us going. So if this show brings you joy, please consider giving to help out our show. 
You can help as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because it helps new listeners to tune in. For more details about this episode and all of our other episodes, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. Check back in a few months as we continue to explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. Thanks, as always, for listening.